I was told a story some time ago about a young woman in her teenage years in the 1930s, how she came to know and follow Jesus. And in that very moment, she knew that she wanted to go into a lifetime of Christian service. The moment she accepts Jesus, a lifetime of Christian service to go to Asia as a missionary for the rest of her days. What was amazing is that this girl was steadfast. She kept her resolve to serve Jesus overseas for years upon years upon years. And every step of the way was a step step of uh, preparation, schooling and equipping and prayer and aligning with missionary agencies. And as she was ready in every single way, she knew there was one thing she was missing. There was one thing she was missing. She knew that she needed a husband. You can almost hear all the feminists in the rooms like they're skin crawling. You don't need no man. You can almost hear it. (laughs) But allow me to explain. See, if we know anything about what was happening in Asia during the 1940s or the 1930s, is that any missionary agency wouldn't have sent anybody. I mean, it was challenging during these times. It was dangerous. She herself wanted a companion, a helpmate to go there just to be with her in such a heavy time for missionary work in Asia. So the story goes that one night she sat down and she said, God, I'll give you my everything. God, I'll give you my entire life, anything. There's only one thing I need from you, a husband. So she decided to go to Bible college. (laughs) Smart, right? She went to Bridal, I mean, Bible college. She attends and is diligent there for two years, and yet... Not a single man, not one date, no prospects, and no suitor. And the night before she graduates in her dorm room, wanting to leave the following week to head off to Asia, the night before she graduates, she sits on the edge of her bed, and she is furious. She is angry, and she is raged at God. Her prayer being, God, how could you? God, how could you do this to me? I asked for one thing. God, I promised you my everything. I asked for one thing. You couldn't give me one thing. I heard this story some time ago, and um, it's nothing profound. I mean, it's no Stephanie Meyer Twilight novel or whatever. It's nothing profound. But the story of this young woman just blistered me. See, I think it's so fresh for our culture and each of our lives. Here we have a true story from oh so many decades ago about someone who in their deepest of hearts knew they were sent beyond to be used by God, but in her night of brutally honest prayer, what was uncovered is the exact opposite. The story continues as this young woman in the night before her graduation, as she was completely shaken by a revelation. She realized that in wanting to serve and to be sent for God, that she put God in her debt. That she was using God. That she was telling God, no, 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 you have to do this. And instantly she realized that her life of sacrifice was really no sacrifice at all. She was finding her worth in what she wanted. And she developed her own ideas of a heroic, noble life. I was thinking, if that's not relevant enough for us, we can all relate to this woman that 
that she determined when and what and how God will send her. She determined. God, we are in control. Jesus, you're my co-pilot. And this happens in the 1930s. It happens in 2016. And this has been happening for centuries upon centuries upon centuries as God has been calling people, as God has been picking up the phone and calling people to give him the keys to our, to their life. And that heavy truth drips from every page of the very Bibles you are holding, especially in the book of Acts. It's where God disrupts a person's life and redefines everything, right? Calling people to sacrifice, calling people to abandon the right to determine. You want to know something that's really uncomfortable? Stand up in front of a room and a Bunch of, with a bunch of Angelinos and say that God is calling us to abandon our right to determine. For those here who are unchristian, you probably hear this and you're thinking, what? Hear me on this. Most Christians, more often than not, in trying to follow Jesus, have the same visceral reaction. Christians, if we can just admit it, we want to determine how and when and where God will use us, right? We want to determine that. You give me a husband. Personally, that's why I felt the burn in relating to the story of this young missionary woman. As she became very aware and finally prayed, she finally prayed at the end of the story, whatever you would have for me, I will do. Her final prayer was, even if I don't like it. Her final prayer was, even if it doesn't make sense to me. Because you, God, are infinitely wise and all good. So I put up all this framing and I nail up all these like two by fours of sacrifice and service so that we come to these 12 verses tonight aware. I just want to come to these 12 verses tonight very aware as a very, you know, finite man and friend to you guys. And, and as you guys, as, as a lot of you Christians in here, some of you not, I want us to be aware and stare straight into what it means to be serious about God. What does it mean to be serious about Jesus, serious about the Bible, and serious about church? So without any more delay, let's read it. Starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The book of Acts, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, the book of Acts is filled with people who are to inspire us. They serve as archetypal men and women with, who basically make up the seriousness of what it means to wear the inscription of disciple. And if you've been around for a while, long enough with us, as we've kind of done the slow crawl through this book and we sort of peeked in on the early church, key essentials have made themselves very clear throughout our 13 chapters. And among the highest of those key essentials is this. It's the idea of sentness. Allow me to say it with stronger emphasis. It's an identity of sentness. These verses are all about being sent. 
And if we were to just passively read them, like I've done a hundred thousand times, just passively read these, we'd miss the gravity of what it meant for Acts chapter 13, peeps, and what it means for our lives now. Because this idea and identity is one of extreme importance and power. You cannot read the Bible without being smacked in the teeth, without knowing and realizing that God has been sending people since creation. Right? Think about it. God has sent Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Deborah, Joshua, Caleb, Elijah, Esther, Jonah, all the prophets, and then God sent his very own son, and then his very own son sent the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and that very same Spirit has been sending people again and again and again and again and again and again. And those who are being sent now in Acts, Acts chapter 13, Barnabas and Saul... Get this, this is nuts. Have the furthest reaching implication we've seen yet in the book of Acts. Meaning that if you're here today and you're a Christian, that somebody along the way has come along and told you about the saving power of Jesus and you says, yes, I want to trust Jesus with my life. How about this? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, but you've heard about Jesus, you've heard about Jesus and you've heard about his sacrifice, it's because these men got on a boat. If you've heard about Jesus, it's because God sent these two men. If anybody in this room's heard about Jesus, it's because of this right here. This is how it spread. It's because of the sacrifice of these men and their church. Friends, this is one of the biggest turning points in Acts. This is one of the biggest turning points in all of the Bible. We have to get this where the good news of Jesus spread, not because of there's persecution and opposition. It spread just because of mission. It was a triple journey that would stretch from Turkey to Greece and then finally off to Rome. But it began in Antioch. A couple weeks ago, I don't remember exactly when, but we talked pretty in-depthly about Antioch. I don't know if you guys remember, but Antioch was amongst one of the most highly populated cities in the world at that time. It was like Rome, it was Alexandria and Egypt, and then it was Antioch. Antioch was this thriving, liberal, diverse, cosmo city. What does that sound like? Say it again. LA. LA. And in the midst of this insane city, like LA, there sat a church community, uh, perhaps much like this. And these people gathered. These people gathered. See, the church is to gather like we are doing now, and they worshiped. And it means singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. But verse 2 also says they fasted. Now, if I can just hijack the talk for two minutes and explain what fasting is. I've been asked a few times, what is fasting? So I hope this will be helpful. So we're just going to pit stop and then we're going to get right back on it. Sound good, Ivan? All right. Fasting is simply denying a need of the flesh for a greater need of the soul. What they are doing right now, what we see in Acts chapter 13, is they are denying a need of the flesh for a greater need of the soul. And most often, fasting happens with what? The denial of food. Like every night we fast, and while we sleep, we are fasting. And in the morning, we break our fast, and we call that breakfast. Some of you are like, oh my gosh. (laughs) 
A Christian biblical fast, though, is accompanied by a special focus on prayer during the fast. So instead, I can eat this delicious California burrito, but I'm going to fast, I'm going to pray during this time. See, often substituting, again, the time eating with prayer. Author and theologian Oswald Chambers once said that fasting just means concentration. Fasting means concentration. Because when you're fasting, you have a, a, a heightened sense of a, you know, attentiveness. In contrast, a hungry stomach will make you more aware and more alert of what God is trying to tell us as Christians. So it's about being in tune with God and his will. And fasting is something we all can participate with. I encourage you all, fast. Do it at a, learn how to do it. Uh, start, start small. I mean, we know, we know a guy who does it 40 days at a time. It's insane. Now, obviously, not everybody may, may be able to fast from food. Certain people with unique diets can't. But everyone can give up something in order to concentrate on God during that time. Obviously, social media is a big one. Certain rhythms, video games, whatever you kids are into. So hopefully that is helpful. But it's obvious that the church in Antioch is doing their due, due, due uh, diligence, oh, excuse me, diligence to concentrate on God and his work and his will as they proceed to send out Saul and Barnabas. Verse 3 again, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now wait, did we notice the switch there? See, if we thought, if we read this clearly, I mean, which one is it? Is God sending? Is the Spirit of God? Is the power and presence of God and the person of the Holy Spirit sending them off? Or is the church? See, it says the church sent them off. But who sent them off? Pastor and commentator John Stott believes it this way, and I tend to agree. He says, Would it not be true to say both that the Spirit sent them out by instructing the church to do so and that the church sent them out having been directed by the Spirit to do so? See, now why is this important? This is, this, is, this is important. Because this cuts open what a healthy calling looks like, which is vital when it comes to sending. Who in here has said like a million times, I feel called? I feel called. I feel called to do this. I feel called to do that. I feel called to sing in front of the lights. I feel called to dance on Broadway. I feel called to eat burritos. I feel called to leave this church. I feel called to go to this church. I feel called to pastoral ministry. I feel called to marry her. I feel called to break up with him. Whatever. It says here, Barnabas and Saul in Acts 2 have been called. For many of us, we use that word calling like we use the word literally. Literally. I was hanging out with someone the other day who wasn't from L.A., and I must have been saying literally a lot because he looks at me and goes, oh, you must be from Southern California. You say literally all the time, and you use it incorrectly. <laughs> and I was like, you're literally jealous. <laughs> but sidebar, we say literally incorrect so much, Southern California, we said so much that the Oxford Dictionary in 2011 was forced to change the word's meaning. <laughs> Take it, Merriam-Webster. But calling is a word that so many use as a trump card to determine how they'll be sent, 
when they'll be sent and where they'll be sent. No, 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 I feel called. What do we say to that? Okay. A calling, let me do, do the best I can to define it. A calling is an immense desire. It is a stirring, an inner, it's a stirring an inner conviction that you or we are being pressed towards a particular ministry or vocation, place, or people group, and that God is preparing you or us for it. That is a calling. But hear me, a healthy calling is when the church and the spirit are in agreement. For too many times with a calling in our extreme post-enlightenment 2016 Angelina lifestyle, so many get raptured up with my calling, my rules, my determination. Acts 13 saves us from both extremes, one being of individualism in our calling. The Holy Spirit literally just told me, I'm out, I'm gonna do it, peace. And the other extreme is institutionalism, where the Holy Spirit, you take a number, get behind my projects, my plans, my agendas, my desire, and my 5, 10, 15, and 40-year plan, Holy Spirit. I'll never forget Man, the early years of this church, the conception of this church started, I would say, in my heart in 1998 at the age of 15. I, I fell radically in love with Jesus and I, I got saved in this, in this like danky little high school ministry room. And I just fell in love with Jesus and simultaneously fell in love with his bride, the church. I was just obsessed with the church. Two weeks later, I go on this crazy mission trip to Taiwan for three weeks. I should not have been there. That's insane. I was 15. <laughs> sleeping on the floor and like, have you guys ever seen like a sewer spider? Google it when you get home. They jump and they attack and they're big. I'm on the floor with sewer spiders. And in the midst of this missions trip thing, I said, I just want to serve Jesus all of my days and I want to, I want to start a church. Planting, you know, was a word then. It wasn't as romantic as it is now. And I want to start, start, I had this inner growing conviction for collective church. And over the decades, nearly decades, I feel like over the years, I told the church that I was a part of in Hollywood that I could not and that I would not start a church unless I was sent. Meaning you must affirm this. Don't just open the gate. Don't just open the gate and allow me to flop out and flubber on the streets of Venice. The elders of our sending church in Hollywood decide that we, they must decide that we, Pastor Lorenzo and I, will only be sent out and sent forward with a full, unanimous decision and conviction that this church must be started on the west side of Los Angeles. Now, I don't say any of that to paint us in like noble hero hero colors. These guys are great. I say this because I really... We really want to instill confidence in this small, wonderful church community. This small church community that we are part, what we are part of now is not one man's calling that started at age 15 somewhere in Taiwan. It's not some man's dream to, I'm going to bark on the west side. This is my Bible dream journey man days. Now, this is an affirmed calling that started in the, with the Spirit of God and was fully supported 
by the church and the church's elders. We wanted to start this way and we want to continue this way. I say that, and please hear me, we want to be ascending church. If you're taking notes, write it somewhere. Write it on your face. I don't care. We want to be ascending church. We want many more churches on the west side to the ends of the world. Lorenzo said it. There's half a million people out here. We need 40 more collectives, 50 more risen west side churches. We need tons more churches. See, if this church is about Jesus, and we very, 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 very much are, then intrinsically we are about sending. It is impossible to know Jesus and not be sent out. Impossible. Jesus said these exact words in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you talking to his disciples. He's talking to all who follow him. I'm sent. You are sent. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait, are we all going to be sent to Greece and Turkey and Rome and Taiwan? Not necessarily. Some of you may, and that would be awesome. The church, like in Acts chapter 13, should and needs to be sending people globally. But the greater archetypal point I would like to make is We are all sent right here, right now. I don't care age, gender, race, whatever. We are all sent right here and right now. There's a, uh, it's a, it can be a sad distinction for many churches when mission or missions is only an organizational church program rather than an individual and collective lifestyle. Dr. Thomas Hale, a physician who did a solid 25 years overseas missionary work, uh, he says this, no one can say, since I'm not called to be a missionary, I do not have to evangelize my friends and neighbors. There is no difference in spiritual terms between a missionary witness seen in his hometown and a missionary witness in Kathmandu, Nepal. We are all called to go, even if it is only to the next room or the next block. Did you know, get this, maybe this will help make the point come alive. Did you know that out of the 40 miracles in the book of Acts, 39 of them, 39 of them happen outside the walls of a church building? That's 95%, I think. Chase, that's 95%. Or how about this? The first time we see the good news of Jesus actually leave home base in the book of Acts, not a single apostle was involved. Modern day terms, not a single pastor, professional, deacon, whatever, elder was involved. Maybe you're thinking, okay, who cares? (laughs) Whatever, who cares? Well, to me, this is a loud ringing bell in our ears that the main place God wants to manifest his power and change and transform lives is in sending people outside the walls of a building, much like this. The main place God wants to manifest his power and change lives is and in through you. Not just pastors. Is and in through you. And you 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 and you. Stephen Neal, 
in his classic book, History of the Christian Missions, punches us in the gut with, with, with this when he says, nothing is more notable than the namelessness of the early missionaries. Luke does not turn aside to mention the name of a single one of those pioneers who laid the foundation. Few, if any, of the great churches were really founded by apostles. Peter and Paul may have organized the church in Rome. They certainly did not found it. And to just make sure that this sinks in deep into who we are and to establish a sending identity, Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, says very classically and very sharply, every Christian here is either an impo- or, excuse me, a missionary or an imposter. I read that to my wife earlier, and she went, ooh. <laughs> you are either a missionary or an imposter. We are all called Christians. All of us are called. The week we, you know, the, the weeks, Monday through Saturday, where we play and we rest and we create and we work in, is just as important as the weekend when we gather like this. To gather Hear me so clearly. To gather like this is biblical and crucial. It's not the point, though. This is not the point. This isn't church. It's just so custom now that we say we go to church, but that's, that's, that's very wrong. This isn't the church. We are, you are, and this church has a mission. Our job is to not merely invite people to come see some chubby guy do stupid voices from a pulpit. (laughs) But we are here. We are here. We are sent. We are sent to our neighbors. And as Christians, we are entrusted with the primary means of testifying of Jesus. My hope, oh my gosh, my hope, even though my carnal flesh wants to like say whatever, My carnal flesh may desire things, but our hope is to always remember that crowds are not the point. Converts made into disciples of Jesus are. We don't want an audience. We want ambassadors. And hopefully the silver thread that's been tying all of this together, all of this takes sacrifice, right? All of this takes sacrifice not the type of sacrifice where we try to attain favor because we have favor, not the type of sacrifice where I want to get it to earn God's love. I'm talking about value, value. The value of something is determined by by how much we will give for it. Friends, what will we individually and collectively sacrifice for God? This was the inner turmoil and arduous path that the young you know, missionary woman encountered the night before her graduation. To sacrifice is not to merely just say that, that mission and sending has a value. No, no, far from it. It's to say that God is the utmost of value. Thus, when we sacrifice, we sacrifice our what? Our best. For sacrificing for God, we sacrifice our best. It's not a sacrifice like it is like a garage sale. God, take my VCR. I sacrifice for you. A sacrifice should always have a sting. Whenever we sacrifice, there should be a sting to it. We should feel it. We should be uncomfortable. 
We should be uncomfortable. We should be uncomfortable. There is nothing soft about sacrifice, but it's necessary on the path to to maturity and health. Allow me to just ask it bluntly. Are we, are you sacrificing for God? Are we, are you sacrificing for the mission of God? To the point where you feel it. To the point where there's a sting. To the point where you go, I'm uncomfortable. Again, not even just did you. I mean, I sacrificed a few years ago. Are you now? Can I confess something? I really debated whether or not sane or not, but just, again, it's nothing gnarly, but my heart just uh, shatters. My heart breaks into a million pieces when the church, when, the, when, when Jesus, when the mission is seen as something that can be sacrificed and not sacrificed for. Where the church and its mission is seen as something more like, oh, this should be a pillow rather than a pushing of us towards Christ-likeness. When life gets crazy, cut this aspect of the church. When life gets crazy, cut this portion of mission. As followers of Jesus and especially within the confines of a church community, we, we more often than not, will be confronted with either the grassy knolls of comfort and compromise or the steep climb of conviction. Maybe some here have already chosen their path. Maybe by our actions, we've already chosen our path. I will stay on the fringe. I will reject that person. I will only do so much. I will only do so little. If you're part of our discipleship groups here, that means you've already read the verses and now you are hearing it taught. This means this week you're going to discuss Acts chapter 13, 1 through 12 and apply it. I would encourage you to talk to another, not to one another, not just about if they're sacrificing. See, we have to sacrifice. It's in the Bible. It's everywhere. But how they're sacrificing. I want to stir up my discipleship group this week. How are we sacrificing? Let's stir one up like scramby eggs, let's stir one another up to be, to be sacrificing our best. Do we think this church in Antioch was all lollipops and champagne to be sending out Saul and Barnabas? Oh yeah, let's get rid of Saul and Barnabas. <laughs> no, it stung. This stung. They felt the weight of it and guess what? It was uncomfortable. Guys, Barnabas, if you remember, was one of the most generous men in the book of Acts. Barnabas, if you remember, is the only person in the entire book of Acts called good. Barnabas, if you remember, is legit. Saul, who probably many know as Paul, and his name actually changes in this chapter, is one of the most important pillars of Scripture and of the early Christian movement. After like signing people, who's going to go? And the Holy Spirit says Saul, and the church could have been like, oh, he's going to write the Bible. We don't want to get rid of these people. Anyway, but they sacrifice and they send them out. They sacrifice and they send them out. They send their best. I hope when it comes time for this church to plant other churches in the west side and beyond that we send our absolute best. I really do. It's going to sting, but I hope we do it. 
I really do. I want to hold our best with open hands. Now, there are at least always going to be three different things, three different expectations when sacrificing our life in the area or the lifestyle of sentness. So I'm going to go over three things kind of quickly, but bear with me. These are things that we can expect when one is sent. And they're alliterated, so hold on. The first being risk. Risk meaning there's always a level of uncertainty. Always. It takes a massive step of faith to be sent or to do anything for God. Look at verse 4. So being at, sent out by the Holy Spirit, they, they, they went down to Seleucia, and, there, and uh, from there they sailed to Cyprus. Verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. I just want us to realize, when you read these verses, I want us to see that the Holy Spirit didn't say a word about how long, where exactly. Cyprus was Barnabas' hometown, so it seems like that was a smart place to start. The Holy Spirit didn't say what they'll need, how much they'll be paid, They didn't say how they're going to fill the roles of the people in Antioch. Mission, sentness is risky. It's risky. Sending out at times is vague work. If you look at over the Old Testament saints, you often see just God's like, just go. Where? Just go. Okay. (laughs) And in the risky sea of the unknown, and this is true for all of life, I feel like the majority of my talks with you guys, which I love, is, is, is at times it's, it's, a, it's a fear of taking risks. And as your pastor, I want to encourage you, as one of your pastors, I want to encourage you in the midst of the murky black seas of the unknown, always fall back on what is known. Every time. Always fall back on what is known. And what is known in risk is that we have an all good, infinite, wise, loving God. That's what is known in the midst of sentness, risky mission. Oh, that should have been the sermon title, Risky Business. Dang it. <laughs> That's frustrating. <laughs> Second thing we always encounter is resistance. We will encounter resistance. A person who is sent will, at some point or another, come along something of opposition, or someone who will resist. Look at verse 6. This, is, this guy's nuts. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Patmos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish, Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with his proconsul, uh, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul, who sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is what his, you know, is the meaning of his name, opposed them, opposed them seeking to turn to the proconsul away from the faith. See, Bar-Jesus, this magician, sees Christianity as a threat, as a threat to his work. And what he's thinking, he's right. If people's lives are starting to change because they're putting their faith in Jesus, including Sergius Paulus, then people who are in the need of guidance will no longer be coming to cantations and rituals. See, when we think of a guy or what says magician, please don't think, oh, this guy's hanging out Magic Castle in Hollywood on Friday nights. This guy's doing card tricks. No, no, it's not that kind of magician. He's more 
Voldemort than he is Copperfield. He's, he's part of the occult. He's into some freaky stuff. This guy's nuts. So don't think he's just normal pulling rabbits out of hats. And this bar Jesus, uh, Paul doesn't like him. Look at verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. So he sees this freaky magician, and he looks intently at him. Everyone knows that icy stare. This thing, it's the same stare we give everybody when we speed around them after they've cut us off. <laughs> See, Bard, or look, 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 look at what verse 10 says. This is, he gives him the stare, look at verse 10, and said, you son of the devil. Bar Jesus means, bar means, bar means son. So bar Jesus means son of Jesus. But Jesus is a very common name then. Don't think like, Jesus had a kid. No, no, no. He's a magician. No, no. <laughs> Jesus is a very common name then. And now it's obviously weird now to name any of our kids, oh, this is Jesus Christ. <laughs> we don't do that now. This is just a common name. Like, this is Lewis, the Messiah. That's what it would have been like. It's just normal. So I want us to see the irony of what Paul is doing here. Look at verse 10. And said, you're not the son of Jesus. You are the son of the devil. You can almost hear Barnabas in the back going, oh, noise. Like you can hear him in the back (laughs) freaking out. And then he goes on to say, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit. What was Paul filled with? The Holy Spirit, bar Jesus is filled with all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Then he goes on to say, now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. So it's short term. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. This resistance did not stop them or detour them or drive them to quit. But that is the temptation, right? Isn't that the temptation? This sucks, I'm over it. This is gonna be way too hard, X, Y, and Z, I'm done. And John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read it, do it. It's a classic. It tells the story of a man named Christian on his journey to the celestial city, basically life going towards heaven. And every turn of the page presents risk and resistance. People coming to make, you know, crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Risk and resistance is all part of sending. It's part of our journey. But possibly so is the reward. Our final point, verse 12. Then the proconsul believed. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the first total, total Gentile conversion. Gentile meaning not of Jewish descent. Meaning he had no religious ties or theological understanding whatsoever. His name is Sergius Paulus. Now get this, he is the proconsul. He is the Roman governor. He's the head of state. Basically, he's the president. He's the president, and he decides to follow Jesus. 
Why? Because I believe he's over and he's tired and he's broken and he's seen the failures of gimmicks and illustrations of man and magicians. He's sick of other things being God over his life. The young missionary woman was tired and broken and sick of the illusion that she too was God of her own life. Christians, hear me now, please. This is why we are sent. This is why we sacrifice church. We sacrifice so that others may see his sacrifice, so that others may know his sacrifice. I want to think that Jesus went on mission to seek and save the lost so that all may come to know that Jesus is trustworthy with our life. Jesus has proven himself time and time again to be trustworthy with our lives. Friends, this Christ and him crucified is what we are sent to preach. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this Christ and him crucified is what we desire for you to know and consider. Now, if you've been asking the whole time, well, where am I sent? Or how am I sent? Good. So instead of me just barking it at you, I want to show you. So with that, I'm going to invite up some friends who are part of our church. Let's, uh, let's welcome the McLeishes. I'm going to have you guys come over here for mic reasons. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Who are you? Sean. Sean. Sean and Ashley. I've known Sean and Ashley for a little bit of time. How long? How long have you guys been a part of Collective? Well, since... We were sent here, I, even before that, right? I mean, yeah. we met Christmas almost two years ago. Okay. Um, when we were feeling feeling uh, called. Uh, called okay. Sent. Yeah. So. so for a while now, and I've always been inspired and struck by your story. And so I've always wanted you guys to be able to share it to our church, um, at least just a portion of it. So just give them an update. And why were you guys sent here? Why did you guys come here? What brought you here? So we've always known we wanted to be a part of church planting. It's actually part of what brought us together as a couple. And after two years of living on the west side of Chicago, on the west side, um, <laughs> we got really discouraged. We'd been to so many different churches, and we couldn't find one that preached the gospel and valued discipleship. And it was around that time that we met with you and Lorenzo, and we walked away from that meeting looking at each other and going, oh, my gosh, this is, this is it. This is what we've been praying for. And at a certain point... Our prayers had changed from get us out of Chicago and out of the cold and back to California to, Lord, we trust you. We don't know what we're doing. Um, We just want to go where you want us to be. Allow the Spirit to send us where you can use us the most. And it was after that and after the meeting that we just kind of knew, like, this is it. This is where we're supposed to go. And over the next couple of months, just watched as God orchestrated every single detail of everything that needed to be done in such a way that we just knew, like, this is, this can't be anything other than the Spirit mm-hmm. sending us right here, right now. That's awesome. So I've obviously heard that story. I love that story. I remember we, we had a conversation in, like, my front yard years ago, and it's just like, what does it mean to be here? What does it mean to serve here? But what I love about the McLeisha, Sean, and Ashley um, is something that was inspiring to me, and what I'm hopefully is, is inspiring for us is they haven't lost the scent of sentness. Like, they just haven't lost it. And I, I, I would love for you guys to explain 
why you haven't lost and why I'm trying to build you guys up and show you that I think God is really using you guys on the West Side. Explain to me, I mean, I wrote down here, I would love to know and how you view your everyday, your jobs, your plays, your rest as living out that sentence. Like, how do you guys do it? For each of us, it's there's a daily realigning because neither of our jobs are things that we like. We're like, I'm going to go work for Blue Bottle on the West Side. Like, that wasn't what I was doing that's where you work right that's where I work. there you go yeah um you know and, and for ashley it certainly wasn't to work for ucla um <laughs> she likes it though easy bruins easy down <laughs> down um, they weren't jobs that we sought out uh they were jobs that kind of landed in our laps and they allowed us to do you know whatever we want to do and and so it's a, like, knowing that we're sent here on the west side, it's a, it's a realignment um, mm. through prayer uh, and devotion and meditation of recognizing today when people heal. Like, it's, it's to, to be able to speak into people's lives. And so, I mean, and that, it requires um, daily realigning, uh, looking so after Jesus. And every day choosing and choosing again of why you're here. And I loved what you were saying the other day. One of the more practical things, and elaborate on this if you can, I thought it was beautiful, was one of the ways very simply to live out sentence is you just want to be, you do want to be really good at making coffee. Mm-hmm. You want to do what you can in excellence. I mean, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think for me uh, specifically, it's being excellent at what I do gets me so many more conversations with people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's something that, you know, like even my trainer will come in and he'll he'll watch and say, like, the fact that, you know, you can do all of these things with your hands while maintaining a conversation with somebody <laughs> is, you know, is, is a different thing, you know. And I do it so that I can have conversations with people so right. that, like, I, I'm able to not just speak to people out in the front while I'm making coffee, but then, you know, backroom conversations get turned very quickly from professional to personal. Um, and and it allows opportunities to speak. Um, That's great. What would you say to a room full of Angelinos, who Christians who desire to live a sent lifestyle? What would you say to them? How would you encourage them? <laughs> Be excellent. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about you know even the the parallel uh, the parable uh, where Jesus talks to uh, is talking about the dishonest manager who like <laughs> basically steals. Um, but what he says is, like, look at how this guy leveraged his position uh, to be able uh, to do good and to get other people to look at him. Uh, and so as I think about that, like, with, with the jobs that we've been given, um, being able to leverage our positions uh, to be able to, rather than steal, but speak the gospel. Um, and, and it really has given us several opportunities um, to engage uh, about Jesus in the workplace um, in ways that are not negative at all. Uh, well, we love you guys. I think we're so happy you're part of our community. So let's thank you guys. Thank you guys. I love that idea that even just a part of sentness is just, how do I make a cup of coffee well? I think that's, I think there's some power to do that. How do I play this guitar well? How do I hold this conference call well? It's just living in sentness. How do I love these people? How do I show up on time? How do I show that this matters, that work matters? 
I thought that was a powerful part of their testimonies. So let me finish with this. Can I challenge us? I just want to challenge us right now. And just go out and say it here. I'm just going to say it. Maybe, this may only apply to some, but maybe the reason some of us hate our jobs, hate school, can't stand our roommate, upset with our situation, is because we've lost a sense of sentness. Think about it with Los Angeles. I don't think a single one of us are here by accident, meaning nobody stays in Los Angeles. I just kind of ended up in Los Angeles. No, no. We are all here for a purpose. We are here for a purpose. I also put down, is it possible that some of us have grown weary and lackadaisical with the church? With the community of the church is because we have lost the flavor of being sent. Essentially, why are you, why am I here? Oh, this church isn't cutting it. These people aren't cutting it. I don't feel this. I don't feel that. Have we lost a sense of sentness? I want to challenge us that anything that may seem too intense or a nuisance, I want it to be renewed tonight. Let us pray now for an invigorated sense of passion of why you, why we are here. Amen? Join me in prayer.